Rejoining us is a good friend of mine personally and professionally. More than a pleasure to have a seasoned political journalist, author, and public speaker joining us. Author of Dog Whistles, Walkbacks, and Washington Handshakes, Decoding the Jargon, Slang, and Bluster of American Political Speech. He was last on the program the first week of January. Good to have him back and in the house, Mr. David Mark. Hey, David, how you doing? Happy February. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Happy February to you, too. Oh, not that happy when you look at the confirmed cases. You look at a, you look at a map of of measles, and you know you know I have two kids, one six, one seven. I'm not yeah. going near Disneyland or California Adventureland, even though you know. I, I mean, I know that the disease isn't just sitting there lingering. Um, but if you look at the cases, if you look at the, a map of confirmed cases, you got one in New York, one in Pennsylvania, one in Michigan, one in Illinois, one in Minnesota, two in Nebraska. About a, a dozen plus in South Dakota, three in Washington, one in Oregon, where you are. Uh, you're in the Bay Area today, right? I uh, actually Southern California. So you're, not you're too far from you today. Oh, you are, and you didn't call to take me to lunch and buy a cocktail. Shame on you. No, no. Oh yeah, sorry. Quick trip next time around. Definitely. Okay. Uh, in the Bay Area, there's a dozen. Uh, in Arizona, there's about half a dozen, but in different parts of the state, three in Utah. I think I already said, but in Southern California. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And let me say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, <laughs> just so many cases, I, I can't even count the little boxes. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and you know what? Um, one, this is becoming almost this is becoming a political issue now. Right. We have, you know, potential presidential candidates weighing in. Um, some would say this is a delicate issue to the field of GOP contenders. Do you agree? And if so, why? Uh, it is a delicate issue. I don't think it should be. To me, this is clearly a case of science. And I have my own libertarian tendencies. I think you shouldn't try and foist your lifestyle on other people. And as long as it's not harming anybody, live and let live. But when it comes to public health, it's very much in everybody's interest to have vaccinations. And I think it's entirely appropriate for the government to mandate it, unless there are, there are some health cases in which kids shouldn't get shots, and of course that needs to be dealt with. But for the most part, I, I think this is a no-brainer, and I think it's quite unfortunate that there's even any controversy around it. I, I, you know, I, I agree. You know, I have to say, look, as a mom, I have, I have a problem with parents being forced to vaccinate on the one hand, Okay. Uh, and everybody thinks we Democrats are so big government, okay? And I don't like governments telling me how to raise my kids or what to do with my kids medically. Then again, right. there is a responsibility by the government uh, with regard to the health of its public, of its constituency. Then again, my problem doesn't rest upon vaccinations. It's one, how many, because some of our kids are getting, especially here in California, vaccinations mm -hmm. for things we don't really need anymore. Polio is an example of that, although there were two cases that cropped up in Cali, but uh, for the Ugh. most part, pretty much been, you know, eradicated uh, in the United States. And and yeah. another thing, uh, two hep, uh, hepatitis shots, one you're not supposed to, one, one is really not until you're sexually active, so says my physician husband. Why are we giving, you know, four <laughs> and five-year-olds or younger things uh, for sexually active, uh, you know, preteens? And, and then on top of it, how many we give in the span of time we give it? And that does seem to be a concern. As a matter of fact, this is I agree with Rand Paul on this one 100%, which is hmm, scary. Okay. For me. No, because that's what he said. He said it's not 
It's it's not the the vaccinations. Everybody should be vaccinated, but it's the time number of vaccinations and the time frame of those vaccinations. I think you know I adopted my son. I think my son had to have 36 vaccinations in the first four months of his life before he entered the United States, before he could get a visa to enter the United States. And I was fearful of autism, despite the you know you, you know the study being called uh, fraudulent. There are people out there I know whose child was quote normal on a Monday, got vaccinated on a Tuesday, and since Wednesday has been a different child and is now on the autism spectrum uh, scale. Um, So, uh, you know, you and I have similar feelings here, which is, you know, damn it, I don't want the, you know, government to be that intrusive in my life. But then again, maybe they have to be. So that people understand too, right now, our vaccines, vaccines are required by state law, federal law, or both in the public school system uh, for kids, unless you can get exemptions uh, due to religious uh, reasons. Right. Uh, there, there are these, restri- these restrictions there. And I, and I take your point uh, on all of this. Uh, I'm not a parent yet, and so I haven't had to deal with this. You know the ins and outs better than I do. I guess what's concerning to me is, is some of the pseudoscience in that, there, there really aren't any good studies suggesting that vaccines lead to autism. I, again, I'm not claiming to be an expert here, but it seems like that's been largely debunked. And it, it just, I think you should exceed the science on these things as much as possible. And yeah, I, I, is I, it, I and, and David, isn't it amazing that with Ebola, yeah. you know, it's sort of like the president's to blame. We've got to build a, you know, a cocoon around the United States, a bubble. But with measles, it becomes a vaccinate, not vaccinate. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> although va- although measles is usually not fatal, it can be uh, in infants, and you do have a dozen in California in the uh, in 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 the uh, you know NICU uh, right now who are being uh, monitored due to one infant, an interna- an, an international child uh, that has allegedly infected these other children. Oh yeah, it's yeah. Measles can be quite dangerous in young ones. I, again, I'm not an expert on this, but you wouldn't want to have any kid go through that, even if it's not fatal per se. So th- this is a tricky one, but I, to me, it's actually not that tricky. I, I would tend to err on the side of the government in that I I think this is a public health issue, uh, but yeah, I, I keep an open mind about it. So the people understand how much of a epidemic-like situation we're in. The U.S. Mm. already has more cases of measles in the first month of this year than the number that is typically diagnosed in a full year. And, wow. um, and, and, and last year, the number of cases was several, time, several times more than the average since 2000. Um, by the way, in 2000, measles was declared eliminated in the United States. Um, so this would seem, although they can't always know the source, uh, this would seem that Uh, this is from an international source. I've been told here in California, one of the sources that they have confirmed, I think, in that hospital was a child from Mexico um, Mm -hmm. where they don't have the um, level of vaccination and requirement for vaccinations that we do here in the United States. Had a doctor Mm -hmm. on yesterday, an expert, who said she'd be willing to bet that in uh, Disneyland, and we're not sure if they know or don't know where it started, uh, especially if you mm-hmm. because it's you know such a transit place, but she'd be willing to bet it's uh, an international visitor to the United States from another country that doesn't require vaccines as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that very well could be. Uh, it's 
These are always tricky things in that, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I had really bad allergies, and so I actually couldn't get a flu shot. And so my parents had to deal with a lot of this. And so I, I'm sympathetic to parents having extenuating circumstances. It's just, boy, I think what, what concerns me is the impulse, just this massive, this automatic distrust of science in a, in a lot of ways. And but. let's talk about that. The GOP has issues with science, with climate change is a perfect example, okay? Now, mm-hmm. how do you reconcile modern science when they have so much skepticism among their core conservative voters, yet they can't get up there and be irresponsible? Like Chris Christie's like, more parents you know, should have control, and then he backpedals. Rand Paul gives his opinion, which, honestly, I listen to a bit more simply because he is a physician. And then you just have Hillary Clinton, like Grandma knows best. Look, it's it's science. Um, so are you know are there Republicans out there that are debating the science? Are they doing a good job tiptoeing around this elephant in the room, which is you know it comes under the umbrella of science? And and why do Republicans have such a problem with science? I mean, just giving your child a vaccine doesn't mean that you're saying God doesn't exist. <laughs> You know, that, that this is bigger than God. Maybe God gave us the brain and the means to create such technology to uh, rid our country and our world of such uh, such illnesses. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good question. It's also on the issue of evolution. Back in the 2007, ahead of the 2008 Republican campaign, you had the majority of Republican presidential candidates saying they didn't necessarily believe in evolution or they questioned it. And that. That's kind of odd to me. That's a strange one. I agree. I agree. David, we're going to talk about a lot of things in this hour. And if you can talk with my guest, he's my friend Dan Yuris, author of Dog Whistles, Walkbacks, and Washington Handshakes, Decoding the Jargon Slang and Bluster of American Political Speech. Mr. David Mark, pick up the phone and join us, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. You can get his book on Amazon. Also, just go to the website, dogwhistlebook.com. And on Twitter, at DC is where you can follow him. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He's David Mark. Who are you? Give us a buzz. 888-6-LESLIE. 888-653-7543 is the number. The Mises outbreak is proving to be a delicate issue to the GOP field because they have to reconcile modern science with the skepticism of science from their core conservative voters. 888-6-LESLIE. 888-653-7543 is the number. Pick up the phone and join us. Uh, David, let's take some calls. Sound good? Yeah, sounds great. In New Mexico, line three, Walter is joining us. Walter, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for joining us. Question or con- Oh, it is water. I thought you missed an L in there. Water is joining us from New oh, Mexico Leslie. on line three. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Leslie. Yes, it is water. And I am a retired naturopathic physician. And I am far from conservative. I am one of the most progressive people you've ever met, even served time twice because of my progressive activities. And I want to tell you that, A, measles is a necessary part of growing up. It helps our children develop their immune systems. I exposed all three of my daughters, and my granddaughter was exposed to measles so that they would get them while they were young and healthy. And as long as the children are basically healthy and have decent immune systems and a good diet, they get through measles easily. By using homeopathy and nutrition, they get through the measles easily, and their immune system is built up, and they never get measles again. But if you look at the records of who gets measles 
from these children visiting from other countries or wherever they get them, you will find that a large percentage of these kids are kids who were already vaccinated because the vaccines do not work well. And measles has never been eradicated, and I don't believe ever will be eradicated. The vaccination policies are anti-science, not pro-science. And when David says that the, uh, the studies were debunked, he's wrong. Maybe one study was debunked, but if you go online, you will find several places where you will get all the information you need about the many studies, as well as the hundreds of thousands of anecdotal reports. And if you look at the federal government's insurance system set up to pay parents for vaccination results that are so dangerous for their children, you will find lots of records of children who should have been, whose parents should have been uh, recompensed, I guess is the correct word, although that's a lousy way of looking at it. And, and you will find that our government and our science-based medicine is failing our children. Well, I, I, don't, I don't disagree that we do a lot. I mean, whether it's even Purell to, you know, I mean, like, you know, we're taking away healthy bacteria from our kids. And, um, you know, there was a piece uh, in The Guardian about the return of the measles party, you know, speaking to your point. Um, but what about infants who do die from measles? As there are infants who do die who are not strong enough. Uh, and whose immune systems are not developed as of yet. I know that you're a homeopathic physician, uh, and I have respect for the homeopathic science industry, although I'm married to an MD. I do appreciate both Eastern and Western uh, medical um, theories on on various things, and I am a parent. Um, But... Uh, you know, if I don't agree with injecting our kids with the flu and the flu shots to build up the, their immunity or to keep them, you know, from getting the flu, um, you know, the, not every person, as you know, we're all very different and very individual. And there are children, there are different people who have different reactions to measles, um, including blindness um, that has taken place. So, you know, to expose every child to measles, wouldn't that be irresponsible since the, the science East or West doesn't prove that this is a healthy way of building up a child's immune system in the uh, formative years of their uh, life uh, medically. Okay, to answer your question, first, yes, there are some infants who may die from measles, and it's very sad when it happens. Yeah, yeah, but as a parent, I got to tell you, I'm not going to do anything that will risk my... I I understand just walking out the house, they can be at risk. I do not believe in exposing infants measles on purpose. I do believe in exposing healthy children at the age of three, four, five to measles number one. You'll find that nearly no children of that age die from measles, especially if they are on a healthy diet. Also, oh, I've already forgot the next thing that you said I wanted to respond to. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, I, I, well, I, I said a number of things too. I was talking about, um, you know, deaths, uh, that, that there isn't, uh, the, you know, evidence that exposing, uh, them, uh, to this. And, you know, I mean, quite frankly, the fact that we vaccinate and we pretty much got rid of measles, doesn't that say something for no, vaccinating our no, population? It's not true. That, excuse me, but it's not true. We never pretty much got rid of measles. 
there is no proof that vaccination has ever eradicated any disease. Yeah, but aren't you exposed to other diseases? For example, and and, and David, I want you to weigh in, but wait wait a minute. Chickenpox, for example. Wait, wait. Chickenpox, for example. If you have chickenpox, as I have, if you have chickenpox, for example, you can get shingles. You have the shingles virus inside you as a result of having the chickenpox. Lastly, first, there is plenty of evidence that having measles gives you permanent protection from every day. Obviously not for people who are blind or have died from it. <laughs> okay. Let's and because your I child didn't die or become blind, if they had, you wouldn't be uh, saying this to us. David, go ahead. Bye. Yeah, I'm not going to contest Waters' medical research here. He's, he's the physician. He's got the background in it. But I think there's some real questions to be raised about putting even one child life yeah, potentially at risk it's it, it's easy to say that if it's somebody else's but yeah. boy I, I, that's an awfully big risk to take i agree i think i think it's uh, an irresponsible risk to take uh whether you're western or eastern medicine uh thank you uh for your call there water uh and thank you uh, for sharing your information your knowledge and your opinion we're going to take a break when we come back more of your calls 886 leslie 886-537-543 is the number don't call one Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. We're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome. Welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk Radio. Talking with David Mark. We're going to continue our conversation about vaccines and uh, measles and all the politicians weighing in in hour three. Be sure to join us and get your number, your pen ready to write down our number 8886-LESLIE. Also follow us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall to tweet us. But David and I are moving on. Uh, the, the, the GOP... Um, has changed their soundbite with regard to uh, the president and his latest budget. Now it's being mm. called, I think it was Congressman Paul Ryan that called it Envy Economics, right? Uh, <laughs> where do they get these things? I mean, do they have people who, who write these things? Envy Economics. How are you envying <laughs> having Envy Economics when the economy is doing better across the board and you're just trying to make sure that the improving economy is felt by the majority of the people, the 99%, the middle class. But to answer your question, yes, these are written by other people. <laughs> Paul Ryan, agree with him or not, he's a smart guy. Maybe he came up with that one himself. But it's pretty predictable that Republicans were going to oppose President Obama's budget. What they're really objecting to is what he, the Democrats, President, the Obama administration calls infrastructure investment, and Republicans don't don't want this unless, of course, it's in their district. It's a road, a bridge, a local project, and they often have different views. So there, this is fairly predictable that Republicans would say this sort of thing. But here we go again. It, it's not ni- neither side is going to get really much of what they want when this budget is all said and done. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, there's been years of fighting over a budget with the GOP. Now we have more GOPers for the president and Dems to fight with. It's a $4 trillion budget proposal, as I've mentioned earlier on the show this week, yesterday. Uh, and uh, this is a major shift, though, for the president from just four years ago, right? I mean, four years ago, he put forward a plan to slash deficits by cutting domestic and defense programs. At the time, he said, quote, we all need to make sacrifices. But this time around, he's proposing tax credits for working parents, new early education programs, and even pay raises for federal workers and he wants to of course repair the very long neglected roads and bridges as he should also he wants to offer free tuition to community college uh so his previous calls for major reforms uh to popular entitlement programs uh, to find savings uh puts even some on the left scratching their heads why do you think the shift is is it because the economy has improved so much and he now needs to tweak uh that stimulus program yeah, I think that's part of it in that, yeah, there is more room now to try and build out and grow the economy with some of these projects. And the thinking is that this would help in Republican districts as well. Also, though, I think this is the part of the president setting his legacy, kind of a continuation of what we heard at the State of the Union speech a couple of weeks ago, where he all but said, hey, you guys may have won the midterms, Republicans, you picked up seats, but I don't care. I'm still president. I'm doing what I want. It's a continuation of the policy of opening relations with Cuba, the illegal the immigration executive order, some of the other measures the administration has taken, you might say unilaterally, and it's kind of a thumb in the eye at Republicans and saying, I'm not done yet. I've still got almost two years left in office. You're, you're going to have to deal with me. Oh, most definitely. Um, let's uh, also talk about the Republican response. Very predictable. They see this as this, quote, new Obama as the return of an old and old tax and spend uh, liberal. Is this the tax and spend that liberals in the past have put forth or been accused of? Um, you know, or is this different or is it tax and spend because it works better than, you know, tax cuts? I mean, look what tax cuts did in the Reagan years on, in the country. And let's look at Wisconsin. Why, why is Scott Walker, you know, you know, cutting off his uh, university professors at the knees financially because he's got to make students pay for his screw ups with the tax breaks that he imposed in Wisconsin a couple of years ago? Yeah, this isn't a redistributionist proposal. It's not trying to just hike marginal income tax rates on the wealthiest. The president has proposed that in other areas, but that's not really what this is about. This is this is more infrastructure investment and trying to grow out the economy uh, in that way. And it's also, I think, a recognition that austerity just didn't work in the whole sequester thing, which was supposed to only be a last resort if they couldn't come to a deal, and that's exactly what happened. It's starting to pinch in a lot of ways, certainly most with the military. And there may be a way to undo some of that, those cuts for the military, if Republicans would go along with hikes and spending for some other areas. So there might actually be room for bipartisan compromise here, possibly, just maybe. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I would think like on the earned income tax credit, but I can't see, uh, you know, many, many of uh, these areas. Um, obviously, the president has agreed to a series of across-the-board spending cuts, sequestration. Um, these right. are mandated by Congress. This is really a last-ditch effort to curb deficits and to spark the economy. So why aren't Republicans on board with that? You you would think they they would be. I think at this point, a lot of it is opposing the president just for the sake of being for, against whatever yeah, exactly. Obama supports. 
reports, and I, I do think that's part of it. But I also feel, again, that the cuts in the military, they've really pinched. They've hurt people across the, board, across the board, arguably hurt national security. So maybe that's enough incentive and inducement to come to an agreement. Again, I'm not real optimistic, but it's possible. And uh, let's talk about something that's going on right now, which obviously is a showdown so that people understand. Is the president... Do you think putting forth in his budget, including things with regard to the Department of Homeland Security, to push through his executive order? And, you know, are Republicans clearly playing politics above the security and the best interest of the American people uh, by, you know, bringing us to the brink again and uh, having all these workers, TSA, you know, Border Patrol agents threatened not to lose their jobs, but to have to work without pay? Which we all know yeah. in the future, if that happens, is payback. And God, in this climate, what if there is an attack tomorrow? Now, some people might say, well, if there is an attack, the people are still, you know, people are still going to be working in Homeland Security. But how can we ask people yeah. to put their lives on the line? How can we ask people? Uh, seriously, we're human. And even though people care about their jobs, you know, for some, it's a job. And how do you do your sure. best if you don't have a paycheck to buy food at the end of the week? Right. I. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to ask if most people there would be doing the best job possible, and that's no knock against them. It's you, if you or I were put into the same situation, it would be the same thing. It's just it's insane. And Democrats are blocking this measure. The Senate actually voted to not let it proceed. And so I've got to think that as this deadline approaches toward the end of February – at the end of the day, there will be a replenishment of this homeland security money. It's what it, kind of like Jay, Jay Johnson, the homeland security secretary, said that it's like trying to fill up your car with five dollars of gas each time. You're just constantly on the edge, and this is life and death. This is real serious stuff, and hopefully, we won't really go over the brink. And um, where do you think, other than earned interest income, there can be some bipartisan agreement uh, in this budget, A? And and B, will that help the president and Democrats to look like, hey, look, they're playing nice with Republicans, or is it going to come out good for both? They're both going to come out smelling like a rose with uh, those areas. Uh, There may actually be some room for compromise on tax policy, on tax reform, in which both sides say that they want to close all kinds of loopholes. Although as soon as the administration tried that, say, on college savings, they got brushed back by members of both parties. So it, it, it may not be as smooth. But in theory, there are a bunch of tax breaks that both sides could agree to eliminate. You might even see the White House agree to some broader tax reform in that low in lowering of marginal tax rates at the top if it dealt with lower it flattening out the tax code making it more progressive in other ways all all kinds of things are possible but in this climate it's still going to be awfully tough Uh, there's probably not again a whole lot of reason for optimism here Do do you think that some people view the president as changing up from four years ago because what he did four years ago failed when in actuality it didn't and it's smart to tweak based on where you are in a given year economically as a nation yeah i think it's a matter uh, it's seen by a lot of people as kind of adjusting to circumstances as they're presented at any given time and remember that was right after president obama and the democrats had lost control of the House and the Senate had lost seats, and it was a bad time politically. 2014 was bad as well. 
But this time, it seems like the White House is more willing to fight on it and pick a fight and really kind of get in the face of Republicans who are opposing him. So it will be, uh, it, it, it'll be, it will be a much more aggressive White House for the final almost two years in office. Uh, let's take a break, and we have more to talk about. When we come back, we're going to uh, talk about a guy who used to be the mayor in my city in California, uh, and former mayor Antonio Villaraigosa. We'll talk about why he is being discussed in the next segment with our guest, David Mark. And we're back. David Mark is our guest, seasoned political journalist, author, and public speaker. His book's called Dog Whistles, Walkbacks, and Washington Handshakes, Decoding the Jargon, Slang, and Bluster of American Political Speech. David, thank you for holding. Uh, welcome back. Um, I have to Happy say... Happy to be here. When, when, we, when I looked at this at first, I thought, wow, his name in the news again. Uh, the <laughs> former mayor of Los Angeles, not everyone knows, certainly people in Southern Cal, where you are today, not contacting me for drinks or lunch, no, just joking, uh, <laughs> is uh, a former Los Angeles mayor, Antonio Villaraigosa. Um, he is plunging into the uh, Senate race. Uh, this is a strong Democrat. This is a Latino, really good-looking guy, but a guy that cheated on his wife, which nobody seems to care about because it's in the past. Um, you know, he is uh, going, obviously going to run for Senator Barbara Boxer's seat, which makes me very sad that she is going to uh, vacate uh, going forward. Um, This is somebody who, although is a strong Democrat, has a lot of criticism from progressive Democrats, or at least did back in 2012 when he signed on to campaign to fix the debt because it was a nonpartisan movement to put America on a better fiscal and uh, economic path. How do you think he's going to do on a state level for that higher office? It remains to be seen in that it's not clear yet whether former Mayor Villaraigosa is going to run. He would bring some advantages, no doubt. Being mayor of L.A., there's, of course, a much larger population of potential voters, a pool of potential voters in Southern California than in the Bay Area, where his main rival, Kamala Harris, is from. She's the state attorney general. The turnout tends to be higher up in the Bay Area. It's also worth noting, though, Villaraigosa is the former state house speaker, so he knows a lot of people around the state. I I thought this was an interesting article in that this really plays to the the Democratic base. There are a lot of people who would potentially be angry with the former mayor for getting involved with this group, which wants to really balance the budget or have at least a way to cut down debt. I think it's actually a fairly reasonable, responsible way of doing it, but the concern, of course, is that these kind of cuts would eat away at Social Security, Medicare, etc. It's kind of funny because Villaraigosa is known as a pretty strong progressive. That's been his public persona for a good long while since he's been in public office. So this is a bit surprising. I think this is probably a bit of opposition research from his potential rivals put out there in the early days of the campaign, maybe to scare him off. But his main rival at this point, Kamala Harris, the state attorney general, she may have her own problems. There's plenty of opposition research to be performed on her as well. Um, I, yeah, most definitely. And, and also that, you know, I, I think Kamala Harris is uh, Hispanic, right? Actually, she's got an interesting background. She's uh, One parent is African-American. One is Asian, I think, from Thailand. I shouldn't say that without saying knowing, but it's... it's, it's I got to look it up. I thought she had... I thought she had... I thought she was part Latino, you know, but she def- definitely is somebody who is a person of, of color. She's definitely 
uh, somebody who is of a mixed uh, ancestry. Uh, and that's right. uh, that diversity is definitely appealing to not just Democrats, but California Democrats especially. Sure. Although Antonio Villaraigosa can make the claim that he would be the first Hispanic senator and that he would represent a big chunk of the population, uh, California's increasing diversity. I would imagine on the issues, they're probably in a fairly similar place. They probably line up evenly on, I'd say, nine out of ten issues. Yeah, but what about, a, what about on an entitlement reform? Um, the, you know, when he, when he signed up for that campaign to fix the debt, there, there were cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security there. Um, and, of course, studies show that and suggest that could fall heavily on middle-class Americans. That's not what a Californian wants to send to Washington, uh, you know, across uh, any age group in, in any voting category demographically. Well, it's also worth noting, remember, in California, there's this top two primary system. Yep. So it, Republicans actually will probably have a say somewhat. It's not clear which big-name Republican, if any, is going to jump into the race. But it may not just be like a traditional Democratic primary where you're trying to motivate the left wing of the party. You could have others involved. So depending on who else jumps in, and there's been other names like Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez, Congressman Adam Schiff, both of Southern California, some other House members as well, and maybe some other possibilities, you could have a splintered field there. And Kamala Harris could face a, a tougher race than many people are expecting uh, you know i'm i'm just wondering too he's kind of been you know name recognition is huge and he's been even though here in you know la uh where i am his name is big not necessarily the case throughout you know much of you know maybe even in san diego but when you get into sacramento even san francisco name not as yeah. big name recognition is big and one that you know that name recognition you know across the state Two, he hasn't been in play for a while. We haven't heard much about him or from him in a while. That is true. And as you alluded to, there also was that scandal in which he was cheating on his wife with, yep. a, uh, the, with a Spanish-language television reporter. Yeah, that, that woman, the, the woman on Univision, so, yeah. Yeah. So we, let's just say if he runs, we can expect to hear a lot more of that coming out. And that may be a, a factor that persuades him not to. I would suspect he will because he's, I believe, 61 years old. This is probably his best chance for high office. And kind of like, why not? Unless there's something we don't know about those scandals, and that's entirely possible in these he, situations. And he's a, he's a guy that when he had a tough policy call, you know, he even said, quote, you know, I have people upset all the time. I'm in a job. I'm not looking to do what's popular. I'm looking to do what's right. He definitely is a guy who's going to do what he wants. He doesn't really care what the polls say. He wants to do what he thinks is the right thing to do. Right. And I think a lot of this is Kamala Harris's backers trying to set her up as the anointed one, as right. the front runner, and to scare off any other possibilities. So he seems to me like the most likely. There's still a good chunk of time here. The filing deadline for this race isn't even until a year away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, a, that's a race. Really, even the, the primary, the first vote is not until June 2016. So that's what 16 months from now. That's that's a good ways off. He he probably would need to start raising money, but there still is time to decide. And again, she may not be mo the best candidate. We just don't know. She did. She ran a tough race for attorney general the first time. She cruised to victory this this, this last time for reelection, and we we don't know what she's really made of in a hard race. You know, uh, let's take, I'm sorry, we did have a caller on the president's budget. My apologies. Mark in San Francisco. Hi, Mark. Line three. Good afternoon. Please uh, share with us uh, your comments on the uh, president's budget. 
Yeah, I think he's he's got some great ideas. The problem is uh, the Republican Congress um, has given a pledge to Grover Norquist not to raise taxes. And as long as we've got politicians, and, and especially the Republican Party, uh, that have taken pledges not to raise taxes, we're going to have a heck of a time uh, getting anything uh, reasonable done in Washington. David? Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. It's going to be awfully tough to get any of this kind of compromise through. Maybe, though, it could be couched in terms of broader tax reform, where the president gives up something, say, lowers rates, but maybe they close some loopholes and deductions, and that gives Democrats something. But, yeah, some, at some point, there probably will have to be some defiance of that tax pledge, and it's not clear that that's going to take place. And uh, thank you for your call, Mark. Uh, lastly, David, less than a minute. If you had to, you know, bet when you have so many, you know, when you have uh, Kamala Harris getting the endorsements and, you know, the, the, the money, uh, the checks, uh, even though there's a year uh, to file, doesn't she have a running uh, start and, and, and maybe might win because of that? Oh, without a doubt. And I think that's not by accident. It's part of her strategy, clearly, to anoint her as the front runner, And that may be enough to scare off rivals because it is incredibly expensive to run statewide in California. The one last thing I'd say about her is she's been a prosecutor for a good while now, San Francisco District Attorney, now State Attorney General. You never know what can come out in past cases. I'm not alleging anything or suggesting something. Just You could see opposition researchers digging through right. plea bargains, furloughs gone bad, etc. Absolutely. Absolutely. David, thank you for joining us. Follow him on Twitter at DavidMarkDC, website dogwhistlebook.com.